Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorumdale Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life and today we're talking about renewing Protestantism. Hey, before we do that, Bob, you recently committed to the Keller Center for cultural apologetics. Chris, were you aware of this? I was. Yeah. So we told yeah. it, we told our church about this a few weeks ago. Bob, tell us a little bit about what you're getting into there. Yeah, the Gospel Coalition has started this new little project called the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. It is a kind of a think tank slash um, resourcing arm for the church. Uh, there's 26 of us who will do fellowships with the center, basically trying to create resources, books, podcasts, articles, um, catechisms, things for the church to use and for Christians to use around the category of cultural apologetics. Um, When you think of, if you ask what is cultural apologetics, you might think of it this way. Um, You think, you generally think of apologetics as the defense of the faith. So, you know, there's some apologetics that are like, how do we, you know, why do we believe in the deity of Christ? Why do we believe in the virgin birth? Why do we believe in the authority of scripture? Those are sort of what I would call biblical or theological apologetics. Cultural apologetics has to do more with um, what are the assumptions of our culture that need to be questioned? What are the ways that we sort of, the things that we take for granted that need to be poked at and unraveled? Um, And this is what Tim Keller has done very well in his ministry in New York City over the last 30 or 40 years is to to do that kind of work, to sort of start from where a more progressive sort of city is and the things it takes for granted and then to say, hey, let's let's ask where does that come from, or what's underneath that, or how do we, how do, how do, why do we think that way in the first place? And so that's um, kind of the work that we'll be doing. I'm excited about it. I think it's um, it's a fun opportunity to serve the broader church. And I, you know, I do it from here. I don't have to leave Coram Deo. I don't have to um, do anything different than what I do. I just get to sort of participate in some projects, thinking and writing and creating that will help the church that way. Dusty, I texted Bob a couple of days ago and said two of his fellow fellows are some of the foremost bobbing scholars in the world. And I said, if he does not use that connection to get those guys on this podcast, then what's he even doing? Yeah. yeah you could just think of it as we're making bobbing great again at the Keller center. There That's you what, go. We've got James, go. James Eglinton and, and Nathan Gracie Tonto who are that two of the, two of the great bobbing scholars alive today. So we're, uh, we're bringing Herman back to the center of evangelicalism. I'm all about, I might donate to the center. That, that away, reason. Chris, we knew we could get you. Um, this article, which is, which is from Jake meter published at mere orthodoxy a couple of weeks ago called toward a renewed public Protestantism, the beginnings of a manifesto. I like Jay. I like a guy that's beginning a manifesto, but cause it feels like it's unfinished to me. It's like, Oh, there's gonna be more manifestos, but it, it connects to the work kind of the same idea as what the Keller Center is trying to do, which is to say, how do we renew Christianity in America? How do we renew the church? And so when I read this, I was like, oh, this is an interesting topic for the podcast because I think it is something we particularly care about and want to be committed to. I hope that listeners to this podcast are not like, yeah, whatever happens is fine. I hope you want to see the church flourish. I hope you want to see the, the, the people of God thrive and I hope that you want to see the gospel affect the culture around you and um, the idolatries of the culture be exposed and more and more people worship Jesus. And so that's that's what this article is kind of about. And that's the same work the Keller Center wants to do. And so I thought it'd be good to just sort of chop up 
Jake Meter's preliminary manifesto here. And as you know, Jake lives down the street in Lincoln, Nebraska, and um, has been a guest on our podcast before and really a thoughtful writer and thinker. And I always appreciate some of the things he puts his finger on. And so um, that's what we're going to do is just kind of talk about this article. So Jake Meter, I mean, the article basically sets up as a problem solution. It's kind of a history first, then the problem, then the solution. So he gives us an interesting history of American Christianity that I think is actually very simple, but accessible. And here's basically what he says. There were four traditions that make up what he would call American Christianity. That's the mainline Protestant tradition, the evangelical tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, and the black church. And he says, when I talk about American Christianity, I'm talking about sort of those four streams. And he says back around, you know, in the 1950s, all four of those streams were pretty strong. And of course, if you think about like the civil rights movement, the black church got even stronger during that period. Um, if you think about, you know, um, evangelicalism and its rise in the 1970s. So there was, there was even a high point for some of those traditions after that. So, but basically what he says is um, that world that used to exist in the mid 20th century of those four traditions sort of together defining Christianity in America that world has largely collapsed, he says. Um, the Protestant mainline has kind of become, it's it sold its soul to modernism and progressivism, and so it has sort of lost all of its um, strength, and people are, you know, those traditions are dwindling. We did a podcast just a few weeks ago about the decline in the United Methodist Church, and so Protestant mainline churches are all declining. Evangelicalism, he says, has has become more and more amorphous and only superficially Christian which I think is a fair statement. Um, ask yourself if everybody that calls themselves an evangelical <laughs> would be a person that you feel great about uh, having in your gospel community, and you might know why he would say that, right? That there's um, there's been, he calls it sort of a market-based innovation. Instead of just doing classic historic Christian worship and preaching and liturgy, a lot of churches have just sold out to relevance and to attraction and therefore evangelicalism has really become amorphous and diverse. Yeah, he, he writes, a movement that is losing its understanding of marriage and in which nearly half of its members are de facto Aryans will not survive as a meaningfully Christian movement. That's a strong indictment on the evangelical movement. I mean, he's not wrong, yeah. but, but just to kind of highlight where, where evangelicalism is now, that's, that is a, a profound statement. It is. He says the Catholic population, of course, used to be a high immigrant population. You know, it started out, you know, it was like Italian immigrants and uh, Irish immigrants, and now it's more Mexico, Central America that are sort of propping up the immigrant population of the Catholic Church. But he just acknowledges that those communities tend to decline as they exist in America for a second and third generation. So you might have first generation immigrants might be very highly Catholic, but you generally see Catholicism dwindle as people age and as they assimilate more into American culture. Um, and then he says there's also some some version of Catholics that's white cultural and intellectual elites, you know, who he makes this fascinating point, which I'm like, I'm glad he said this because I experienced this a lot. Many of those people are often converts out of the mainline or out of evangelicalism. So if you think about like, who are the thoughtful Catholics working today? Most of them used to be evangelicals or Protestants. Former Protestants and evangelicals. That's in that is interesting. I mean, that's, uh, you know, a lot of the Catholics I follow on Twitter because I try to pay attention. It, it, that really is who it is. It's Rusty Reno at, at First Things, who's a former Episcopal. It's Francis Beth Beckwith at Baylor, who's a former evangelical. I mean, there's a lot of people in that category. And then he says, finally, the black church has also fallen prey to a sort of political capture. 
and has experienced its own kind of demographic decline. And so he basically says the, the American church right now is in trouble. Um, I don't know if I agree with everything he says. He's sort of a doomsday prophet here. He says, um, in the next 10 to 15 years, colleges will close, as will seminaries. Churches will shut their doors. Other ecclesial institutions will likewise fail due to a lack of financial resources. Um, so he just thinks like, hey, we're, we're on the edge of a cliff when it comes to sort of the thriving of the church. Do you agree? Well, the point he made about sort of the boomer generation as still kind of holding what's left together. I thought that was an interesting point. Like boomer influence, boomer money Yeah, in some way. So I don't know. Did, did you? I wrote in the margin. Of, I wrote in the margin. Not sure I agree. Okay. I okay. think I can see what he's saying, but I think I also said, but that's kind of true in every generation, right? Like it's always the people between 55 and 75 that are writing the, I don't, I don't think that was any different 30 yeah. years ago. I think that that's always because those people are at the peak of their earning power, They've, you know, they're later on in life and they tend to want to support institutions and things like that. And your average 25 year old is just trying to get out of debt and, you know, get a dog. So, um, <laughs> I read that to, to be the, the old, the next older generation isn't going to really want to preserve. Again, that's, I think he's trying to prophesy that I'm just not, I, I don't know. I think time will tell. I think time will tell, but he is saying that like boomers have a particular, they are propping up a certain kind of institutional heft that maybe our generation won't. And we'll see. Either way, Jake Meter says, the task before us is to imagine what the American church will be in the aftermath of this collapse. So he wants to say, let's try to imagine what the American church will be after all that falls apart. And that's an interesting question. And he suggests the challenge before us is to essentially replant the Christian movement in the United States. He basically is arguing, we're going to have to redo this thing, guys. We're going to have to replant Christianity. That seems like a pretty big, big lift. But that's what Jake is saying. Do you believe that's our task, Chris? Replant the Christian movement in the United States. I got inspired reading this. I, I like the vision that he cast because he's he's talking a lot about institution building, whether it's the local church, whether it's at a parachurch organization, seminaries, um, media sort of outlets. Uh, so I'm like, let's get to building. So I, I like what he is proposing okay, here in cool. his manifesto. Interlude, interlude. Jake Meter has this little interlude where he talks about this Ralph Winter article. He calls him Richard Winter, which is not the correct reference. It's Ralph Winter who wrote this article, The Two Structures of God's Redemptive Mission. This is a classic. He was a, a missiologist at Fuller Seminary. This is a classic article where he basically goes all through church history and says, hey, in the history of the church, when the church is thriving, you always have local churches or parishes, and then you have these secondary structures like the monastic communities, like the Desert Fathers, and like parachurch organizations now. And both of these things, these are two structures of God's redemptive mission. So you always have a church kind of structure and like a outside-the-church, parachurch kind of structure. And in, in Protestant world, we get that, right? We know there are like churches, and then there's things like InterVarsity or Campus Crusade or Crossway or, you know— uh, the local seminary or the local Bible college or, you know, uh, the American Bible Society. There's there's these parallel structures that sit alongside the local church and that move forward the mission of God. And Ralph Winter says, that's what you always need to see God's redemptive mission go forward. And so Meter sort of wants to use that and say, okay, let's talk about what it would look like to replant the Christian movement in the United States in both of those ways. So you're going to need renewed local churches, and you're going to need renewed 
parachurch kinds of things. Um, so let's take a look at what that might look like. Having set that paradigm, using that Ralph Winter article, then Jake Meter says this. Let's talk about evangelicalism. The problem we're dealing with in evangelicalism is twofold. First, churches have become commodified, driven to see themselves as a kind of lifestyle purveyor. I think that's true. And then second, parachurch organizations have not adapted, and they don't operate in a very close relationship to the local church. And so you have a church problem and a parachurch problem. I don't know, Dusty, I feel like we've been having this conversation as college ministry. This was 25 years ago in our lives where we were saying, yeah, yeah, parachurch organizations, we love them, but they also seem to have this weird, like they don't connect people to the local church well. Yeah, I've always felt like the parachurch exists because... This is too black and white to say, but the parachurch exists because the church wasn't doing its job. Right. And the church was okay with the parachurch existing because they were taking care of some things that they didn't have to fund or, or disciple or make happen. And I, you know, he points out that one of the weaknesses, like think about a college campus ministry, uh, InterVarsity or Campus Crusade or, you know, Campus Outreach or whatever your RUF, whatever your local ministry is. Many of those ministries don't connect students to the local church meaningfully. And so what he says is you have people who have a really vibrant community when they're in college because they're part of these Bible studies and these small groups and these worship services, and then no one teaches them how to live a normal life in the church. And so they graduate, and then they move to Milwaukee or Buffalo, and they're like, well, I don't have a campus ministry. Those are part two of. very cold places, Milwaukee and <laughs> It might also be Phoenix or okay, Orlando. Um, but wherever they end up, they haven't been taught how to be part of the local church. And so there's just, they, they end up fading away. And that's always been my passion for college ministry is your, your campus ministry is not going to follow you after you graduate. Yes. Now, some of them do have some things in place now, but again, I think we have to be training young people to, to find good and healthy churches. Yep. And he gives a great example of how RUF is of those campus yes. ministries is is probably doing this the best in some ways, and that it was born a lot of their uh, philosophy of ministry was born out of the PCA recognized, hey, we're in demographic decline. We need to be discipling, making disciples of college kids, and so let's do that while also connecting to the local church because they have a robust ecclesiology. So I, I love that he's uh, he's pointing at places where this is actually happening. Yes. How can we learn from that? How can we grow this out? Yes. And I think there's been a good resurgence in the past few decades of people trying to do campus ministry in a way that connects kids to the local church. So he says, okay, in light of those problems in evangelicalism, what then do we need? So he has the, the final section of his article, or the second to last section, is called What We Need. Here's his answer. First, we need churches that understand their chief function as being the plain preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacramental life of the church, and ordinary Christian discipleship. That had to get you fired up, huh? Oh, yeah. That's, I think of, of I, I loved all of those things, but that thing in particular, I'm like, let's do that and let's plant churches that do that. Amen. He says, in such churches, it will be taken for granted that the chief responsibility of pastors is the preaching of the gospel and ordinary shepherding of individual believers. Absolutely. Yeah, let's get back to those kinds of churches. Instead of, he says, the various executive-like functions and responsibilities that have invaded the pastoral calling in the seeker-sensitive era. Less email, more shepherding. Yes. Preach Less it, Jake. chat GPT. Yeah, no chat GPT. Write your own sermons. sermons. That's right. <laughs> Preach that. Second, he says, we need a network of institutions and communities of friends 
that create a robust ecosystem of organizations and networks to support the church in her worship and work. Now, this is interesting because that's that's all kind of a long sentence, kind of a lengthy way to say it. But what he's saying is, and I, this, I like how Mark Dever says this. Mark, Sever, Mark Dever says there's what the church ought to do, and then there's what Christians ought to do. The church should preach the gospel, make disciples, give the sacraments. But Christians should be starting orphanages and nonprofits and community development agencies and right yeah. all, all the ch- Christians should be on the cutting edge of helping to solve some of the problems that decay social life and that lead to um, cities declining and those kinds of things. And so that's really what Jake Meter is saying is you need the church and then you need this parallel ecosystem of organizations that are doing all kinds of meaningful kingdom of God work. So this would be more like that and not, because when I initially read that, I was re- thinking Gospel Coalition, Acts 29. Well, I think he means that too. Oh, okay. okay. I think he means that too. In fact, let me build out, he gives a bunch of different kinds of organizations. He says, we need media institutions. Okay, I see. Yep, we okay. need digital outreach organizations. We need institutions featured focusing on reaching young people. So campus ministries and young life and things like that. We need seminaries, training pastors. We need institutions that seek to repair the social fabric. He gives examples of nonprofit ventures addressing poverty, literacy, addiction, mental health, and so forth. Um, And things like laundromats and coffee shops and bookstores. So I think he has a pretty big category here of like everything from a seminary to a bookstore that might all be run by Christians and exist to help a neighborhood thrive and provide a place for people to come and read and learn about books. You know, so that's a pretty big spectrum. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the thing he's yeah. mentioning there that's different for the future as opposed to the the world we've lived in so far is all of those things are to make it and to have influence are going to have technological competency. He yes. says, yeah, the, the interesting thing about the media thing, and I, I was provoked by even the work we do here with this podcast and trying to think, he says, given, I'm going to read a couple sentences here from the article, given the ubiquity of the internet and internet enabled devices in contemporary life, it is hard to foresee a renewed American church without the presence of institutions that help provide a disruptive witness to the truth within digital and media spaces and to offer alternative counts of our life together that push back against the radicalizing and secularizing tendencies of digital technology. Uh, I think it's really fascinating what he's saying. It's basically the church, we live in a digital world, and we're going to have to have a witness in the digital world. And so you're going to need institutions and platforms that, that create a witness in that space. And I think it's interesting to see what some people are doing. You know, some people are doing it in a, real, in a, a little too follower driven way, you know, where it's like, we want to get followers, but I just like, there's, there's a lot of really creative YouTube channels where Christians are trying to do thoughtful things to just engage people thinking about life and culture and theology. And so I think there's, he's basically suggesting we need to keep figuring that out. Yeah. And the, the difference that you just made there of the follower based mentality, which when we're, we're given to that, then it can become, those things start to replace the local church versus I'm resourcing the church. I'm for the local church, strengthening the local church. And so I have, I'm, this content isn't connected to one, but it's, it's trying to have this sense of, I want to strengthen, I value the local church. I want to strengthen Christians for their local church contacts and local church discipleship. And so that's what, you know, reading this, like, can we, how do we make that shift in today's sort of ecosystem of 
of media because so much of it is follower based. So, and so that's going to, I think that's just going to be an important thing to build out what he's saying. Well, and it's an interesting opportunity to just talk about the Wednesday conversation and the thing Bethany reads at the end of our podcast, which is <laughs> this podcast exists for our own church to equip our own church in discipleship and mission. So what, one of the things we've tried to do with this podcast for the last seven years is to say, we don't really care if you listen. We don't care if you follow. We're glad if you do but we're not trying to like push it out there and grow a follower base. We're really trying to disciple our own church. And to the extent that other people find it meaningful and helpful to help them grow, great. But we have never thought about this in terms of like, how can we get advertisers? How can we push our, our follower count higher? We've just tried to think about it in terms of like, how can we serve our people? And I think that's what he's saying is like, when we think that way, we will create good, thoughtful content, but it won't be, we won't be driving it to get seen and by the algorithms that then you have to play all the games to, to move it up the charts, you know? And again, maybe that's not to knock everybody who thinks that way, but I do think the question of does this digital thing serve the church or is it like its own thing is an important question. Well, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying there as, are we doing this to have a bunch of outward facing influence or are we doing it to disciple and meter saying, if we're going to replant the, the, the church, we just need to focus on discipleship. Yeah, we got to disciple. And other people can listen in. He, let me read another section from the next paragraph. He says, we also need what might be thought of as digital outreach organizations, which help churches understand how digital technology functions as a formative presence in a person's life and how media actually reaches people. These, organiza these organizations should not simply mimic the most recent marketing hacks favored by America's large businesses but should rather see their work as existing to aid churches in preaching the gospel and discipling their congregants. The need is less about marketing expertise and more about technological competence, which is the line you were mentioning a minute ago, Dusty. So what he's saying is we don't need to just market well. What we need is people who have technological competence that can help us understand how technology is discipling everyone and then therefore how we use technology to actually disciple people in the way of Jesus. And I think that's an interesting, he's poking at some interesting things. They're basically saying there's some R and D work for the church to do, to figure out how to do this effectively, because what's happened in sort of the seeker movement is whatever marketing strategy is working for the business down the street, let's just do that for our church. And I used to make fun when we were planting Quorum Deo of all the, you know, direct mail flyers that I would get of like, Hey, we're starting a new church at the mall down the street. And here's a, you know, it's like, if you send out 5,000 of these mailers to this zip code, you'll get 50 people who would show up to the church. And I think that strategy has just now been replaced with let's push it out on Instagram or let's use Facebook ads or whatever. But it's it's a very marketing approach instead of just a technological competence that says, what does it mean to disciple people in a digital economy, in a digital world? What I like about this article and what Meter's getting at there is it always has the human or the image bearer in mind. So it's less about marketing or advancing our thing. And it always has the soul in mind, the soul of the person we're trying to reach and disciple and minister to. I think you're right. And my question for you guys is, okay, having heard his case of, hey, we need to replant the Christian movement in America. We need to renew the church around preaching and sacraments and discipleship. And we need a parallel set of institutions that sort of do all this other work. That is both compelling to me and also man, that sounds like a big lift, you know? And so I'm curious how you, how you hear that. Do you think he's right that this is what the renew? I, I like that he calls it re a renewal of public Protestantism. 
I like that because one, he's just he's using the category Protestantism, which is a broader category than evangelical or mainline or whatever. But two, it's it's got this public aspect, this sense of like, yeah, we're actually talking about the common good. We're talking about renewing a whole full Christian witness in the world and in a city or in the country. Um, it's compelling to me. It also feels very daunting. Yeah, it is a big lift. It is certainly a big lift. And as you were asking that question, I was thinking, where do you start? And I wonder if in some ways where the start is, is within the discipleship of the church of creating this category for people of recognizing, hey, there are, there, there is, not, not that these two things are separate by any means, but recognizing, hey, the, there is work that the church does that we give ourselves to. And that is a, there's discipleship there, but there's also the discipleship that's happening right alongside that, that is outward facing for what it means to be a Christian in today's world, building these kinds of institutions. And so how is the church discipling its members to build these very institutions? Because I think if, if what he's calling for a close connection to the local church and evaluating the local church, then those categories are going to have to be built, I think, within the church. So I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, one, continuing to build First City Church into this kind of church, thinking about what does it look like to plant churches like this, but also how are, how are we discipling the people of First City Church to think this way about their life in the, the public sphere? How are they thinking about who are the guys that maybe can start some of these organizations or get involved with some of these things and how they're thinking about that? So I, I want to, I mean, my first step maybe as a pastor is to say, how can I disciple my people to to think this way and have a vision for this? Do you think evangelicals can do this? Um, not half of them, but Protestants can. Well, what I mean is evangelicals have always had an institutional skepticism. Yeah. We, we don't like building institutions. We like to be outsiders and underdogs and, you know, do our thing kind of like outside the mainstream. If you think about the difference between Princeton Seminary or, you know, a place like, like that and some of the evangelical seminaries that are much younger, much newer, and just like institutionally don't have like the heft, the credibility, the historical longevity. Now, I think where Princeton Seminary is theologically right now is generally not great, but it's also been there for a pretty long time. And, you know, or think about like your average, your average Catholic hospital or Catholic um, elderly care home. Those, those things have generally been in our city for almost a hundred years. Right. And you think about evangelicals trying to start those things and it's, we just don't seem to do as good a job building long-term institutions. And I just wonder like, can we? I don't know. I mean, maybe we just need to figure it out. But well, it also raises the question in my mind: Do we have any other choice, considering the world that we're increasingly living in? Because that's the—I mean, he didn't have space to get into this in his essay, but underneath all of this is our culture is becoming increasingly hostile in some ways, and the how we're going to build some of these institutions—it's not going to look like it did in the '50s and '60s. So there might be just by necessity, some aspects where the evangelical world is going to just have to learn how to do this because if they don't, where what space are they going to have to kind of operate robustly in, in some of these ways? I don't know. That, that's me. You know, I, I don't, again, I'm not a prophet. I'm not, you know, well, I think it is. how it's going to go, but I, I'm, I'm just wondering to your point, Bob, we might just have to learn to do it. Well, and I think that's great. I just, I want to encourage, I think you're right. Like how do we disciple people to do it? But also how do we just try some stuff? You know, like the, the R&D component of this. 
you know, I think about an institution in our city, like in common, right, which was started by folks in your church and mine, you know, 20 years ago, now led by Christian Gray and a really great team um, doing community development work in vulnerable neighborhoods in our city. And if I think about like how long it's taken them to figure out how to do the thing that needs to be done in Omaha and to do it with a high level of credibility and skill. It's like, it's been a long journey and it's been through a lot of sort of trial and error of figuring out what does it mean to serve homeless people in vulnerable neighborhoods and strengthen them and rebuild them and deal with issues of poverty and literacy and family breakdown and all those things. And I think they're doing amazing work, but it's like, it's taken a long time, yeah. you know? And if we hadn't had, and those, those are great, mostly evangelical folks who also are making common cause with Catholics and with atheists and, you know, with just people in our city who care about things like poverty. And I just think evangelicals tend to, not, they want things to be successful fast. Yes, yes. And so we don't have a lot of like, yeah, hey, let's just keep sticking with it and try it. And if it doesn't work, let's pivot and adapt and shift and figure it out there. That's what you have to do. And it, it seems like that's some of the stuff that sometimes we don't have the patience yeah. to do that work. The, the institution building mindset has to take the 20, 25, 30, 50 year mindset. It's like, this is, this is going to be a long haul. We can't expect in, you know, plant big instantaneous results that, that, yeah, like you said, that so much the, the hype, the evangelical hype machine that we can get caught up in and the examples that you pointed to the traditions that have typically built those kinds of things have a long view of history because they're, they're already a long institution. So yeah. there, I, I see what you're saying in the, the sense of, do we have the the stick-to-itiveness because of just kind of what we value as evangelicals? That's it, a good question. I want to sow something that I heard recently uh, on a podcast. Susanna Black Roberts, who some of you may know, um, she said she grew up on the East Coast in like a fourth-generation mainline Protestant family, or no, Jewish family. They didn't go to church. They were like, you know, ethnically Jewish, but not really observant. But she said in that sort of East Coast old mainline Protestant milieu, you have an understanding of how to rule is what she called it, how to lead, how to be in charge of things, how to run an institution, how to run a private school, how to not just care about how much money you make, but your responsibility to society and to the city that you live in. There was like this, and she said, it's very much a class thing. It's like upper crust East coast people just have this sense of like, well, you exist for the good of the city. And so don't just go make as much money as you can. Make sure you're giving to charity and upholding the arts and caring about, you know, the local public library and the opera and those kinds of things. And she said, evangelicals just don't have that gear. And so they don't know how to rule in the sense of like leading that kind of thinking. And I thought that was really interesting because it kind of is, if you think about where it came from, it's kind of an old European aristocracy way of thinking, right? Of like, we're responsible to like take care of this, this village or these neighbors and evangelicalism doesn't have that same way of thinking. It's a little more of an upstart underdog, you know, gritted out kind of a ethos. And where it does to some degree, like we were saying earlier and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this train of thought, but where it does is it kind of becomes like the pastor does that um, over the church. Like he's the CEO leader over the church. And that's just weird and twisted because it misses what the church is about. And also refocuses some of that energy in the wrong place instead of saying, hey, we need to disciple into being 
good at ruling and, and caring for creation and leading in our community rather than putting this strange energy towards the CEO rock star pastor. Yes. So in some of the ways that the deficiency, maybe that this is the best way to say it, the deficiency of that in the evangelical world has both caused us not to build institutions, but also do really weird things with leadership and ministry. Well, I think this is why I like meter capturing the word Protestant because it's a word that has a 500 year history and that does connect to, okay, how did they do things in Geneva and in the Netherlands and in England and in Scotland? I mean, there's these, these history, these institutional histories that, that help us think less in terms of like in evangelical in terms of like, do we care about the gospel? And more in terms of how do we think about, have a longer institutional memory to use your language. Um, I do think I had a friend, I might've used this quote before, but I have a friend who interacts with this Catholic priest and he was making a comment to the Catholic priest, something about, you know, you guys have done such a good job with hospitals and healthcare and, you know, famine relief and those kinds of things. And the priest said, that's because you Protestants think in terms of decades and we think in terms of centuries. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty, pretty true. Um, so maybe we do need a, just a, a longer-term vision. An all-millennial or mo- more post-millennial kind of thinking, maybe, Chris. I don't know. Fair enough. To use eschatology. Yeah. Well, for those of you who are listeners, I will post the article so you can go consult it yourself. And again, I, you know, Jake calls it the beginnings of a manifesto. So maybe, maybe there will be more iterations of this. But I hope what it helps you think about is two things. One as a Christian living in America that's increasingly trending post-Christian, we need to care about, one, the renewal of the church, starting with your local church, and then planting planting and helping and strengthening churches beyond that. And we need to care about building the kinds of social institutions, educational institutions, culture-building institutions that really can have longevity and, and make a difference over time. And so I hope that this spurs you not just to care about your own relationship with God, which is a great starting point, but to think about the thriving of your church and the, and to think about what, what institutions might you be equipped to either help or to start, whether that's a Christian school, whether that's a nonprofit that deals with literacy or poverty or, um, international adoption or whatever. Um, it's interesting for Jake Meter to sort of provoke us to ask if we need to, as he says, replant the Christian movement in America. That's a bigger deal than just planting a couple churches, right? And uh, it's going to take all of us and it's going to take some great ingenuity and innovation. So hope this stirs you to think about what the Lord might do through us and through you. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Wednesday Conversation.